0: If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah 64 as we read with Blake. And if you know anything about me, you know that I'm a why person. My brother always, my older brother always said, I never ran out of the question why. Why do we do this? Why do we celebrate celebrate Advent? Why? And as we enter this season, most of our culture around us looks forward to Christmas. It's festive, it's colorful, it's fun, it's exciting. I mean, who doesn't like opening presents? Who doesn't like eating more delicious food? And we ought to be excited. Yet as the church, we are even more excited than those around us. We are even more joyful because this season focuses us on Jesus. Spoiler alert. Advent is about Jesus. And if you know me and my family, we are big about not spoiling movies. But the spoiler alert of Advent is that we look to Jesus. As we do every Lord's Day, but in Advent we look at Jesus coming to his people because he loves us. Yet we are also looking today at Jesus yet viewed 700 years before he came. And this is the advent of Israel's expectation. The Messiah, the Savior Savior of Israel was coming. And he would rule justly. He would rule the meek. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, The celebration of Advent is possible only for those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. We await Christ. And this is what's so incredible about the church age is that we get to celebrate the great fulfillment of the Messiah coming. Because at the fullness of time, Christ was born of a woman under the law to redeem those under the law that we might be adopted sons and daughters of God. God is faithful to his covenant promises and we rejoice and celebrate. And at the same time, we await Christ's second advent when He will come and annihilate sin and death and restore His creation like gold being refined by the fire and He will bring heaven with Him and every knee will bow whether with a happy heart or with enmity in their heart. There will be no doubt when Christ returns. He is king. This is the answer to the why question of Advent. Children, Samuel, Eleanor, Anna. If you have children, these are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves. How can we focus on Jesus during Advent? And how do we celebrate that Jesus completed his mission? How do we celebrate that Jesus did what he said he would do on our behalf? And he's coming again to fulfill his promises. Let us focus on Jesus this Advent. The imminence of transcendence. As John emailed me, that's an interesting topic. But the eminence of transcendence is a biblical truth that separates Christianity from all other religions. You see, most old religions really understand God's transcendence. He's holy other. He's above everything. He's created everything. Yet most old religions, and even atheism, actually go too far with their view of transcendence and say that God cannot be known. He is so other. Yet what we see, and what Isaiah even says in Isaiah 6, we will see later, is that this transcendent God has made himself known to his creation and to his people. And this is what new religions get wrong, is that they do the opposite of what old religions do, and make God so transcendent that they make God so imminent, God so here with us, that they lose all identity of holiness. And they confuse God with his creation, and they remove him from his transcendence And from his power. Yet the biblical understanding is that God is both transcendent while at the same time being imminent with his people. We see this in places like the garden. God created all things, yet he dwelt with his people and walked with them. We see this at Sinai after he redeemed them, he came down and met with his people. And we see this in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking a form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And this is where we find Isaiah and the people of God in Isaiah 64. The people of God have run amok, and they have this prayer of confession to say, Transcendent God, come down to us. And I want us to see three things in this prayer the call, verses 1 through 5, the confession, verses 5 through 7, and the comfort the call, the confession, and the comfort. And in this prayer, we see this truth of the biblical understanding of God's transcendence and His eminence wed into one. Many of us have called a workman to come into our home. Now, some of us might be pretty handy, but if you're like Blake and myself, we we make that call pretty early. In our understanding of when we need help because at some point all of us need someone to do something that we cannot do like I mentioned earlier this past week we went to Arkansas and my when we arrived my mother said that she had paid a youth intern to come and hang her Christmas lights on her house but to her surprise the student was not comfortable climbing up on a ladder And she said, if you're not comfortable, you don't have to get up there. Of course, his response is, I'm not scared. But then he proceeded to tell her everything wrong with her lights. They were facing the wrong direction. They were the wrong kind. The house really wasn't built properly to hold lights. And the way that she wanted to do it wasn't the best way. And so when I arrived, there were the lights sitting on the front porch. And my mother was out 50 bucks. We have all called someone to come and do something for us. Here we find God's people in, this last, in the last sections of the book of Isaiah calling out to God, please come down. We need you to work. We need you to act on our behalf. And this imagery As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. This imagery should evoke when God descended on the mountain in Exodus 19. When his glory was beheld by the people of Israel as they stood at the bottom of the mountain. Because this is what happens when God shows up. He works and acts for his people. And this is why Isaiah tells us, for the old, verse 4, From of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. He is not like the gods of the Egyptians. He is not like the idols of the people in Babylon, or as the kingdom of Judah was under King Ahaz, who fashioned an idol after the king of Assyria and placed it in the temple of God. No, God is a God who acts on the behalf of his people. He is not idol. And unlike the youth worker that came to my mother's house, he does not have to redo his work. When he works, it is complete. And you, yet you see this call of the Lord is not a demand. It is not an ultimatum. It is a request for God's people who have realized we can do nothing for ourselves. And this is what is a distinguishing sign of God's people. They are a people who have been redeemed. God found them while they were in Egypt, in slavery, and in bondage, and they needed redemption. And he acted on their behalf. This is Israel's petition to the Lord. And as you see just a few verses before in 63, verse 15, when the people say, look down from heaven and see, they are aware of their need. They no longer need God merely to look at them from heaven. They need God to come to them to save them. And God meets with His people, who wait upon Him, as verse five says, "You meet, who, you meet Him who joyfully works righteousness; those who remember Your ways." And He acted, but the people had to wait. Because God answered this prayer in the person and the work of Jesus Christ being born by the Virgin Mary. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, answered this prayer, this cry of the people, and He acted on behalf of His people. But they had to wait. This is the transcendent God becoming imminent to us. For this is, this is how Isaiah describes Yahweh when he sees them. And this is Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew And one called to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And this transcendent God came to his people in the form of a baby. Because God acts and works for his people. Now you might ask, okay, this is 700 years ago. People are waiting for God to act on their behalf. How how does this apply to us? Because God has answered this petition in Jesus. So how does verses 1 through 5 correspond to us? And as I said earlier, this is what's so great about being in the age of the church. That we get to rejoice that God has fulfilled his promises. This is why we are able to sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Yet in the same breath, in the same instance, we are able to sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, because Christ is coming again. At the same time, what was true for Israel, it's true for us in a different way. Israel's hope rested on the servant of the Lord coming to them. And for us, this hope has been realized, yet our hope is for cosmic consummation when the Lord will come and never again leave his people. Our hope is that God would recreate a new promised land where every obstruction of our worship with every hindrance of our fellowship would be taken down and death and sin would be defeated forever. That God would remove our reproach and we will acknowledge that He is our God forever. We await the new Eden when the day of the Lord will return and we will bow and worship Him. This is our call as the church Jesus, come quickly. And we as God's people can confidently proclaim this. And God will show up because God works for his people who wait on him. How are you at waiting? How are you at remembering God's promises? This is what we do at the Lord's table and at baptism. We remember the promises of the Lord. God promises to us. He is faithful. And he will come again. This is the call which leads the people to the confession. Here we see in the second half of verse 5 through verse 7 why Israel is calling upon the Lord. So this this past week on Facebook, and I always want to put a caveat to statements like that because sometimes that's a really bad thing and sometimes it's a really good thing. But I saw a, a simple meme, and if you aren't familiar with what a meme is, a meme is a picture with words that illustrates a simple truth. And this meme was trying to explain the difference between the law of God in the gospel of God. There's the law, as Paul tells us in Romans, where when we were under the law, we were captive by our sin. Yet those who experience the gospel have been set free from the curses. And one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this meme was trying to explain In real terms, these two realities, living under the law and living under grace. Now, the picture of the meme was a child, probably 16 or 17, and they had just wrecked their car. And at the top it said, living under the law. And it was this child, hands on his head, saying, oh no, I have to tell my parents. He dreaded having to tell his parents what he had done wrong. But beneath it, it says, life under the gospel. And the same words, oh no, I have to tell my parents. Of the life of the gospel is that the parents are loving and generous and gracious and desire nothing but the child's well-being. Life under the law was a life according to this meme, what according to this meme was defined by what we did right and wrong. And the gospel was a life of grace. In gospel life, we see that our sins have been forgiven, that we are shown nothing but grace, because the consequences that we deserve have been put placed upon Christ. Yet there are some problems with this meme, because not all law is sinful. For as Romans 4 tells us, Abraham was a man of faith in the promises of the gospel. Because what this meme misunderstood is that what the law actually pointed us to. The law points us to a God who loves us. The law points us to the fulfillment of the one who is to come so that we will no longer have to do the ceremonies of the law because it has been finished on our behalf. And this is what the law of God has done for the people of Israel. They proclaim a confession. Behold, you are angry. We sinned. In our sins we have been in a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hands of our iniquities. the people of God realize they need help. This is why they make the call, because the confession comes after. And yet what I want us to see is that this uncleanliness, this this word for polluted garment is actually referring to a woman's menstrual rag. It's a pretty graphic image of our righteous deeds. But yet we have to ask ourselves, can we do anything that is righteous? As God's people, can we do anything that is righteous? For in verse 5 it says, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. I think, as you will always hear me say, context is king. Because what was happening in the day of Isaiah and the day of Micah was that God's people continued to offer sacrifices to the Lord. But yet they didn't sacrifice offerings to the Lord because they were convinced of their sin. For they also had other idols. The way that they were living showed that their sacrifices were meaningless to them, that they were simply going through the motions. And yet here during this confession of their sin, the people of God have realized we have been wrong. And everything that we put a stamp of righteousness upon, we have sinned against God. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities, like the wind we are taken away. The wind carries off a leaf because how easy our sin takes us from the presence of God. Yet the contrast here is God himself in his transcendence who never changes, who is never overcome by sin or by his passions. And we see that God still loves us that God still works on our behalf. Yet there are some times when we face the fear of walking in darkness, that God might turn His face from us. And this is a true reality. Sometimes our sin is so consuming that God leads us to our sin for a little while. But the truth of the gospel is that he will never leave his people. He will never leave us utterly destitute if we return by faith. What's our temperature? And this might be a bad example in our current state. What is the temperature of our heart's desires to walk in the light of Christ And to glorify him with everything that we do. Not that we seek our own glory, but that we seek the glory of Christ. How are we raising our children, praying with them, reading the word of God with them? Because we cannot do works of righteousness without first following the law that leads us to righteousness in Christ. Are we sharing our testimonies with our children, with our loved ones, with the young people in our church, pointing them to Christ's saving work on our behalf? We do this because we need them to see we need Christ. We don't do it because we think we have something to offer to our salvation. As John always says, we are charity cases. We need Jesus. In, even in our best times, we need Jesus. This is what the people are doing Isaiah, Isaiah 64. They are confessing to God, we have sinned, we need a Savior, and we need you because you are the only God that works for his people. The call, the confession, and now the comfort. When I was in seminary, we we often had people come, and we called it these ministry lunches, and they were people from different agencies, from different churches, from all different organizations, wanting to basically come and ask for for free work from us seminarians, but they offered lunch, and so every grad student that is offered a free lunch, of course, you showed up. There would even be the people that would show up late just to see if there were leftovers, but... One I went to was a bait and switch. The title read, Do You Want to Do Ministry Like Russell Crowe? As a child that grew up, or not as a child, as a young adult growing up and watching Gladiator, of course I want to do ministry like Russell Crowe. But then he showed us this illustration, It's just this powerful illustration in the movie Cinderella Man. It's about a boxer, James Braddock who is being faced in the Great Depression with heartache. And it's a scene at the beginning of the movie and actually has nothing to do with boxing. But Braddock came back from his work because during the Great Depression he couldn't find any work. And he found that his eldest son had stolen salami from the butcher. And when he had arrived, his son was sitting in the corner and his wife was distraught. And he left with him, and he made his son return the salami to the butcher. But there's this powerful scene that when they're leaving the butcher, Braddock is standing next to his son, who's probably eight or nine, and he looks down at him, and he says, Things are hard, but we don't steal. No matter what happens, we don't steal. You got me? But then he does this miraculous movement as he's looking down in the eyes of his son he crouches down to where his son is now above him because what his son says to him is my friends have been sent to live with their aunt and uncle because their parents don't have enough food to feed them and Craddock crouches down and he says promise me you will follow my word we will never steal And his son says, I promise. And Craddock, now looking up at his son, says to him, I promise you, I will never send you away. Craddock took this position of authority standing over his son and came down to him and looked him in the eyes and promised, I will never send you away. This is our comfort this is what we see in verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We all are all worked at your hand. Behold, please look. We are your people. We are your people. And if you recognize this imagery of Isaiah with the clay and the potter, this is something that Paul uses in Romans 9. When he talks about God's sovereign and irrevocable grace for his people, he will never cast them out. God's promises to his people are not dependent upon our will or our exertion, but on God's great Mercy for us in Christ. This is our comfort as God's people. This is our hope in this season. We call out to God because we confess our sins and he responds to us, I will never send you away. And he did not stay in the heavens. And merely proclaimed to his children, but he came down to us in the birth, and the life, and the work, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the imminence of our transcendent God. He came to us. He did not stay far away. He rendered the heavens. This rendered the RSV translates. He ripped open the heavens. And just as he ripped open the heavens to come down on the cross, Jesus Christ ripped the curtain that separated us from the presence of God. This is our comfort in Christ. As the New City Catechism says, following the Heidelberg Confession, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. He is our Father. We are his people. Our future is not dependent upon us. Our future is dependent upon his promises and upon Jesus Christ. We are like leaves that are blown away by the wind. We are like the mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. But our Lord will stand forever and every knee will bow before him. This is our comfort. This is our hope as we celebrate Advent. This is why we anticipate and proclaim come to us. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come to your people, for you are our only hope. Amen. Let us now stand.